everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. It's only happened once before where I haven't been the coolest person on the podcast. This is the <laughs> second time. So do you know who Jane Stricker is over I, at the Greater Houston Area Partnership? I do not. Okay, Jane's awesome. She's cooler than I am. She came on the podcast. This is the second time it's going to happen. But I my guest that. today is Bill Perkins. I don't even know where to start. I mean, energy trader, Hollywood mogul. I don't know about mogul, but yeah. I I made movies. You've made movies, exactly. Uh, I mean, friends with Dan Bilzerian, owner of the Sugar Shack. And so, again, man, I don't know where to poker player. But uh, let's do this. How'd you get into energy trading? Um, Yeah, it was quite serendipitous. Um, I was in college in the School of Electrical Engineering. And really just kind of like chasing women, running around and playing football. Yeah. And my godfather gave me a call. He's like, you know, kind of one of those, what are you going to do with your life calls? Right. Just checking in on me. I said, you know, at the time I saw this movie, Wall Street, and I really loved engineering in terms of like learning it, you know, when I was actually studying and and the idea of it. But I didn't want to do it for a career. Um, That part was kind of death to me. So I saw the movie Wall Street and I was like, I want to be rich. So I told them, I, I think I want to go into stocks. I want to be a stockbroker, right? So, right? Something like that. I want to trade stocks. Everybody wanted to, hey, be I wanted to trade stocks, stocks right? Like yeah. I didn't want to be the evil guy, but I just wanted to be the rich guy, right? Like the guy had like this big giant mobile phone. And I was like, this is so cool. Man. Like, <laughs> this guy's not worried about anything. Like, how do you get a house like that or apartment like that? So he goes, I don't know anything about stocks, but I know about this firm, commodity firm. I didn't know what a commodity was at the time. Um, that that you know they're looking for screen clerks and and that was kind of like my introduction and i was kind of like well i'm about to be broke jobless uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> let me you know get out and i i uh i i you know called and, and secured an interview oh, and I, so so that is circle kind of what year because i think you and i it's got to be 1990 Okay, because I'm 91 from yeah, yeah, college. 91, 91, okay, 91. Yeah, so, so you're doing that. And then how do you kind of advance along the way? It, it was kind of weird because I was a very, very big slacker in college and through most of my life, kind of like the definition of underachiever or unmotivated. And going out in the real world um, and having no money, not being able to get dates and, and, and living at home with your mom really lit a fire under my ass kind of like necessity is the mother of invention and i was like i i don't want to be i don't want to be poor and so i was a screen clerk making no money like assistant assistant peon um kind of actually had to like hustle my they didn't even want to hire me they like wanted to hire another guy uh eddie gagekins but i just kept being persistent and they they you know staying down at the doors and like am i starting today am i am i start fine come come on you're a screen clerk right making no money but uh but i decided at that point i would be the most valuable person in any organization i was in so i wasn't going to just do the job well i was going to redefine the job at each point where i was now I, i didn't i wasn't like all of a sudden hit a switch and i was always consistent with that but i was consistent enough that i never showed a resume to get a job I always got recruited um, and I just kind of like a baseball player just moved up and up and up and up. You know, I'm in the C League and then you know, whatever leagues they have, double, triple A, double A, single A, 
majors on the bench, you know, starting rotation, you know, you know, signing a big contract type type journey. And so you joined Centaurus with John Arnold, what, like 2001, 2002? Whenever we started, some... cradle to grave. Cradle to grave. Except okay. for one time, John fire, fired me in the middle. For Did Bruce he? Stint. Yeah, that's a great story. That's a really great story. Lay it on me. Uh, so uh, I guess we'll jump ahead. So, um, so John started Centaurus, and I was like, I was like, oh, I'm looking for, you know, I'm going to start this hedge fund, et cetera. And I said, well, I'll come work for you as long as I get X percent of my book. Except I have all these other projects going on, trying to do an export LNG import facility in Central America. I had all these other crazy ideas, very entrepreneurial kind of crazy guy doing a bunch of stuff. So I, I'm kind of like this contractor. I'm not really an employee. I don't even care about the salary. Just give me the maximum percent. Fuck the salary. Right? Right. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a live and die by the sword type of guy. John goes, okay. To come in, we're trading, you know, and, and John is very um, meticulous, diligent, grindstone type of guy, right? And I'm the same way in trading, except I have other things. I'm not in the office till nine o'clock night. I may be obsessing it at night, et cetera. And I think very differently. And so I had this big, big run up and then a drawdown. I was still positive. But John was like, this doesn't work. You, you, you're, you, you can't, you know, like, can't work here. And so I was like, okay. And then I, I started trading on my own, but I had all this desk and equipment sitting there, right? right. I started trading my own PA, but inside the office of Centaurus. <laughs> and I'd be grinding it out on my own, you know, making money, <laughs> making good money. And, you know, they hired another guy or whatever. And I think it was Greg Whaley had a conversation with John and other people. It was John who's like, so he doesn't work here, but he's here. And he's gone. And, and I think the kind of logic was is that, uh, and I'm, I may be paraphrasing this and John maybe call in and, you know, <laughs> this was live. He could call in and get John because I wasn't privy to this conversation. But the summation was like, basically, you know, John was like, nobody thinks like him, like nobody. And Greg was like, that's exactly who you want. Right. So they hired me back. <laughs> so his brief stint and I wasn't really hired because I was never really an employee. I just had another I'm back under the part of the Centaurus team again with a Centaurus book. So this and, is me and digital wildcatters. I mean, I don't work here. Yeah, I yeah, do yeah, a the, podcast. Yeah, yeah, I show in, up every day. Show up every day. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then and the rest is kind of history. I, I just um I was the second most profitable trader in Centaurus and made them a one point something billion dollars over the, my tenure there. John obviously was the most profitable trader. Well, and, and, I, and then and then um, you know he called in retired. Yeah, <laughs> called in rich. I mean, called in rich. No, so so snarky me as a young yeah. investment banker. John starting Centurus. And I think my offhand remark was, well, you know, if I owned every energy asset in America, i.e., at Enron, I'd be a great fucking trader too. Yeah. You know, we'll see how well this works. And what was what was interesting about that. Oh, <laughs> no, do, do, do you want to trade out, trade out chairs? Yeah, trade out chairs. You know, Colin, who you just met, I've made a whole career of followers on Twitter by claiming that Colin's short. Right. You know, and yeah. people will come into the office and they'll tweet out, oh, my God, I just met Colin. He's not as short as Chuck says he is. Uh, yeah, yeah. So anytime the chair Goes malfunctions, down, that's well, he's do. a short guy, you know, right. so what can we do? But um no, so I said that about, you know, Centaurus, the startup and all. What was what I found really interesting was John came on Colin and Jake's podcast and he said his biggest fear in terms of going on his own was could could he replicate the information he had for his model 
And he said going out on his own, he knew the the certain filings he needed to ask for, and he was able to replicate 95% of the information in his model. And he said that's what gave him the confidence to actually go start trading on his own, was he was able to re replicate the information. And he figured that out because he had all these assets at Enron. The investors in the world didn't have that um, didn't have that same confidence, right? There was a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, we'll be there day one. We'll show up with the money, but they didn't show up. Yeah, nobody ever shows up. Yeah, they showed up with, John showed up with his money. And then after three months, people were like trying to flock in and invest, yeah. right? Because we, we, were, we were just killing it. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, it was funny when, when uh, I got fired from Kane. They started the conversation with, well, you know, we've had such a good partnership for 20 some odd years, Chuck, that, you know, we're willing to waive all the non-competes. And I was kind of like, well, oil's at minus 37, and nobody's going to invest in a first-time fund anyway right. just when you go out on your own. I was like, here's my position. I'm willing to take a lifetime ban from the industry. That's my side of it. So <laughs> let's, let's start the negotiation there. But, yeah, no, it, it was interesting listening to John talk on, on their podcast about how he had his model and it really was kind of fundamentals driven. And so I'd love to hear how you think about trading. Yeah, we're, I don't get it. I'm a private equity guy. I'm a, we're very, very much a fundamental shop. My hedge fund is a fundamental shop that came out of it. Um, we're, we're, you know, I'm not as much a University of Chicago type guy, you know, efficient market guy. I think the market is actually fat and quasi efficient. But we, we believe that at the end of the day, a willing buyer and a willing seller will have to meet and the fundamentals drive the price in commodities and, and that delivery is a forcing function, right? And so when you, when you say that and you believe that if you're going to trade that market, it's really incumbent upon you to know every single thing about the market that can drive those fundamentals, that supply and demand balance. And so we invest a lot of resources, time, neurons into understanding the fundamentals what's currently going on, and also a lot of what if, right? What will be the thing that causes it to move in the future? The trends, the trajectories, and, and kind of like probabilistically thinking, which is what I did a lot. I think that was a little bit different from, uh, now I think everybody does that, but it, back in the old days, you know, a lot of my positions were um, not a favorite to happen, but a high positive expected outcome. And so when they did, it was kaboom. Right. Yeah. And and, you know, it was a lot of fundamental analysis and, and, and going. These options don't represent the price distribution correctly. I understand. You know what I mean? Like whatever it is, the skew is incorrect, et cetera. Um, these put spreads are too cheap. These puts are too cheap. X, Y and Z. Um, there is, you know, maybe there's a, a different options model that should be covering, et cetera. And I would just uh, use whatever tools were in the market to express that view. Give me one. Give me one example of that, because I've always been markets are efficient. They're billions of dollars. There are tons of really smart people, you know, trading on both sides. How can you find this? Now, I will also be the first person to say, if you look at the oil futures over time, they've only been right 30 percent of the time. But yeah, I, I think there's billions of dollars and I think there's smart people. But that doesn't mean they're directing their neurons to that problem in the way that actually gets to the correct answer. Um, and so when you're a specialist, uh, and you've really hoovered it in and you got some macro strat guy come in or the permalength or the hedgers, 
um, it creates distortions in the curve and opportunities. You know, I, I often say that we're insurance agents, right? We, we, we are, are risk warehousers and we are induced to put on trades based on what the market is doing, right? Whether it's uh, hedging because they uh, don't want to take the risk of a cold winter and the price is going up, their their producers rateably selling the summer and you know it's too cheap relative you know there's distortions based on the flows in the market inflation hedgers who are perma along the front you know there's all kinds of reasons why people are interacting with the natural gas market and that leaves a footprint and that footprint overlaid uh you know we overlay our fundamental analysis on that footprint and when it gets out of a certain range and a certain amount of edge for us in our minds or the model we 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 are we put on the trade you know we're not out there Yahoo! You know, so, right. right? We actually get induced to every position I have. I'm induced to put that position on. Yeah, right. I'm like, oh, oh, you want you want to sell it now? No, I don't want to sell it now. No, wait, this is ridiculous. Like, how could that be? Look at the S and D here, and the weather, and the so and so, and the outages, and the supply, and the solar installs, and the wind, and everything that's going on, all layered out. And I'm like, okay, I'll sell it here. Right. Right. That, that's how it happens. Right. Or I will buy it here. Right. You know, these things. And you have to know about how supply changes and how demand changes with respect to price. And you have to know it well. So if 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 you were and I told you, you didn't have to dummy something down for yeah. the audience, you have to dummy it down for me. Unfortunately, okay. <laughs> but if if we were to think about you trading on top of your fundamental analysis, is it a chicken pecking for corn and you hope you get 51% of the pieces of corn or is it more like a lion sitting there waiting for the the caribou to walk by and jumping on top so, of it so or, or is it somewhere in between yeah I, when i first started i used to be a market maker in options and derivative products and exotic products this is before they even cleared like things called spread options and cso's i actually got the exchange to put those products on there cuz i used to make them over the counter in derivatives market and my reason was is that if I, the the you know these were tools, but I am way ahead of everybody's understanding of it, particularly the banks, because the banks would look at it like a financial commodities, a currency market, right? And they put in their models, and you know March, April, and commodities have different distributions than the normal distributions they put in their model, right? And even the floor, and, and you know made at the time a relative killing trading CSOs. Now everybody gets the trick, right? And it's done. And so I used to make markets, scrape edge, et cetera. And then I realized like, when I'm making markets relative to what I think I can get out, you know, making a penny wide, uh, 10 ticks wide, the mid, let's say is, you know, I'm, that means at most I'm getting five ticks edge plus brokerage, plus maintenance, plus whatever. And then I could be wrong because this guy's ex executing off our information he has or something or flows, et cetera. And I was just like, this is not the real game. Right. I don't I don't I, you know, there's guys out there with HFT algorithms and, and, and charts, et cetera. I was like, let me speak to the fundamentals and the and natural gas, the primary instrument that I trade. We also trade power. It's a seasonal game. We have an injection season and a withdrawal season. Right. And because storage is limited and infrastructure is limited here in the United States, you can have scenarios where the price goes very, very high in the winter. Right. If you don't have uh, to 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 uh, induce the demand destruction, or we can have a thing called containment where there's not enough storage for the gas, right? Your minus $37 crude thing, which I really think was the exchange's fault. Um, 
uh, with liquidity and 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 limits on people, and basically nobody traded the last three days because of the limits, and they don't want to have to deal with regulators like, why are you trading? Why are you doing this? They don't have time to answer a thousand questions about their trading, right? And so everybody was out of it, and there was a liquidity crisis. It goes negative, and then it pops up on the last day, correctly right. as it should, right? And you know, delivery is many, many days after it goes off the board. There's no version of the people delivering negative crude to, right. to Cushing. So it was just, it was just absurd. But anyway, in natural gas, you can have containment issues, right? For a month, it's not going to go negative for a month. They have one day, could something print negative? It happens all the time, right? right? Uh, in in certain locations, and so. These containment scenarios or these runout scenarios, right, and the probabilities associated with them drive a lot of the, the, the positioning, right? It's, it, it's um, you know, the juicier trades are when there's like, wow, there's a significant chance of containment and the market is not pricing this. Or there's a significant chance of we have to destroy a metric fuck ton of demand and the market's not really pricing this correctly. The, so I, I have like kind of like battleship positions. I put them on and I sit on them. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, saying that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I understand kind of storage. I understand pipelines. Right. You know, to some degree. Um, but I just asked myself a question while you were saying all that. How many times does that happen a year? And I'm going to ask that question of you because if you answer it happens once every three years, I would believe that. If you told me it happens. 47 times a year i would believe that too no no i don't know i don't know how to wrap my my head around that i mean you know what happens is is that let, let's just let's just forget this winter for a second let's look at next summer right and, sure. and i think there's um i'll just go say it i think there's a significant chance of containment and also i think the containment the level in storage where prices start to have to go lower to induce demand and then possibly induce shutoffs is actually lower and the reason why is because the infrastructure that we put down on the Gulf Coast has lots of LNG export facilities. And these LNG export facilities have long-term contracts and whatever, but things break, which means they need no notice storage and they need some salt storage just in case shit goes awry at the facility right. and they got to jam a bunch of storage in the ground. So let's just say, um, you know, over the past five years, a significant amount of storage that the market may have used to balance itself is unavailable, right, to, to the market. It's sitting there and must be available to the salt guy. So the effective storage is actually lower. And so, you know, I'm looking at I'm like, well, we got the winter and the winter, you know, weather can cure all, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know. You know, we, the, you know what? That's actually something the kids that listen to my podcast probably don't even know because, you know, kind of the shale revolution to some degree – Winter, winter kind of went away as a big factor on natural gas. Guys, back in the day, it was real. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's back to being real um, because we've, um, we've, we've shut down a lot of coal plants. We put down a lot of intermittent generation, including wind. And those, you know, there's kind of like these correlations between low wind and cold, cold weather. You have freeze-offs. Right. Right. And now we don't, you know, now when you go up $3, you don't all of a sudden induce a whole bunch of more uh, coal gen, right? Coal, yeah. coal, you know what I mean? Like, we don't have you don't have the coal capacity, right? Maybe you get a little bit of ethane rejection, but the, the ethane rejection tends to be split between the hub and west, and they're at a different prices. So you don't get as much ethane rejection as you thought. So the brakes on the way up are, they're, they're kind of missing, right? Until yeah. we get to 
global global gas prices and we leave some LNG here, but those global gas prices are, you know, almost infinity right. <laughs> for all intents and purposes, yeah. right? You know, yeah. if you're short, past your point of blowing up, right? And so, um, and then on, on, on the, in the, in the, in this summer, you know, because we were talking about next summer, you have kind of this reduced capacity to inject and you have a lot of gas flowing into the Gulf, right? And things go wrong and we need to, you know, we need to induce demand. It's like, well, we're already running all the gas we can, right? <laughs> I, mean, right. Yeah. I mean, we may run a little, we may run a little bit more as, you know, I guess down the coal switching channels, uh, you get a couple Bs, maybe B, B and a half down, down at a, down sub uh, 450, 350, and then you, what do you got? Shut-ins. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, th that's a great trading environment because what, what um, you know, and that's kind of what we do and that's kind of what we look at is like, is, is this a fair spread? Is it, we look at the outright price, does it seem right? Uh, you know, are we gonna go to containment? Are, are there spreads properly priced for the risk? How, how are these uh, interspread relations? How, what does volatility look like in this scenario? How does it manifest itself? What could go wrong with our forecast? We're constantly measuring, making a forecast, measure, 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 measure. Yeah. Right? And pulling in data. Pulling there's, in data. The, there's the engineer in you coming yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Measure, measure, measure. Measure, measure. measure. Yeah. Measure. I mean, we pull in tons of data. We use uh, lots of tools. Um, we, we, I've, I've built lots of tools. When, when, when I was at Centaurus, I was, I was pretty proud of that. And I've, I've built tools inside Skylar. And I just recently um, took my CTO out of Skylar uh, to actually build those tools and make them available for sale. And, and it's kind of like, well, you know, people are like, why, why are you doing that? And, and the reason is, is that my AUM, like commodity long short fund, it's really hard to raise money. Yeah. People just want to be in stocks. Yeah. Private equity. Wait, what stocks you got? Well, every time I go on CNBC, they want to talk natural gas, and they're always like, "Well, what stocks?" <laughs> and I'm like, right. <laughs> you know, like, "What stocks are you going to recommend to us?" Right. So I always have to give them a couple stock recommendations for whatever view I have. Right. Uh, but really, I'm just like, put your money in a long short commodity fund. It doesn't even have to be mine, right? It could be Copperwood. It could be myself. It could be GeoSoul. It could be any one of these guys. You know, like th that's where you're going to make. Um, good long good returns uncorrelated to everything else it absolutely kills me and i may get the date i may be off a, a day or two of this but i believe on april 21st of 2020 the second most googled question in the world was how do i invest in oil and the number one answer was USO. Yeah. And USO is such a shit show i hate to say yeah i hate to speak ill of, of, a, of, of a product of a, yeah. maybe i should yeah i mean it's, and it, it, that that totally that is kind of my soapbox since I've been out of the game, right. if you will, is probably about I'll make this up 80, 85 percent of all the dollars invested in energy need to just be based on beta. If you're a taxi cab company in Las Vegas and oil prices go up, your business is going to suffer a little. You should probably be long oil. You know, it ought to be used. If you're Amazon, you ought to be long oil. You got these trucks running yeah. everywhere delivering stuff. And probably 20% should be out chasing alpha. And unfortunately, I think it's the rest. You know, you got 80 or 90% of all the dollars in energy 
chasing alpha, drilling, hedging, and it just distorts it into a big mess. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, and and that's good for you know that big mess is really good for guys like me, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. We're just long short discretionary commodity traders, and these curves get all kinds of out of whack, right? Yeah. And you know it's a golf game. I'm not competing against any of the other hedge funds. I'm, right. I'm competing against the course, right? The market's huge, <laughs> right. right? I'm a gnat on a screw of the machine right. it, uh, relative to the size of the market. And so, you know, but it is what it is. Um, I guess the, the benefit is, is that because, you know, using the analogy that we're insurance agents, there's so few dollars in the insurance agent table, the premiums are extremely fat. So my theoretical edge has really gone up. Like back in the old days when there was a Dynergy and an Enron and everybody and their brother was trading commodity derivatives, every single thing that had any kind of positive expected outcome was driven down to like nothing, right? right? Like you'd really have to get your, you'd really have to be a probabilistic trader on like, well, if this happens, this is what they're missing, right? Yeah. That type of thing. And I think that's part of the reason why I would have those type of trades on. Now, it's just uh, really, really fat, really fat, Real, lots of edge. More dangerous because there's a lot, a lot less liquidity, um, but uh, the margins are super fat. And, and and am I thinking about this right? Because oil and gas companies are out there hedging, et cetera. So, and th let's face it, a lot of that's just management preservation acts, right? You right. know, if I hedge and pay right. down my debt, I've got a job in five years uh, and the like. And so the pure person like you that's sitting there saying, Hey, I think you know going long natural gas in the summer, or going short natural gas in the summer. There's so few of that. That's yeah. what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I'm saying like, listen, the the producers on your premium. Like every year, the producers sell like 1.3 million lots gradably in a calendar year, some somewhere around there. 1.2, 1.3. You can look at the hedge ratios of public companies. Plus, there's some privates out there, et cetera. It might even be higher. Uh, and there's the perma length, right? Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, right? They're they're always long the front. Right, there's the inflation okay. hedgers and all the funds that mimic them, and then there's small non-reportables, and these are uh, they're perm they're always long, right? They I think the shortest they've ever been is flat, right? Like they're like yeah. T boom pickings. I'm either long or I'm flat, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so that's kind of like the structure of the market, right? And so, the general job of the risk warehouser was to take this rateable length and convert it into shorts in the front, right, at some price, and watch it roll and make money. Right. Okay. And then you would put that, you would do that or not do that, or maybe even go the opposite way based on your fundamental overlay. Right. Right. That was like kind of like what paid us all. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's still hedgers out there still having to protect their cash flows, satisfy the banking. Right. I'm not loaning you this fucking money to go drill these wells yeah. unless you hedge X percent of your portfolio. Right. Exactly. Or satisfy investors or whatever it is. Right. And then you also have, on the other side, now you have some demand side hedging. You know, in the winter, you have, you know, utilities do some hedging. They usually like to do uh, weather swaps because they have kind of like this weird uh, relationship with weather. They want it to be cold, but not too cold. You know, that type of thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then you have now the new hedgers, the LNG buyers in the strip coming out trying to offset some of the producer hedging. And so you get, and you have different infrastructure coming in at different times, right? The pipeline comes in, but the LNG export plant is in there, you know, the, the, the gas plant comes in, but all the gas fields aren't gone. So, like, this creates distortions in the curve, both uh, it, uh, with the hedging environment, and it also creates distortions in kind of the fundamentals because they're lumpy. It's never smooth. It's never perfectly executed, so supply and demand matches perfectly. And 
you need risk warehouses for that. On top of that, like the big, big, big coup de gras is um, the penetration of renewables, which essentially, whether you agree with it or not, uh, the, the market is pushing that volatility. You know, we, we have this cheaper source, but higher volatility. So the net cost is really the same. Somebody's got to pay it. Right. Right. Yeah. And we pay it in volatility. Right. Yeah. So you see it when the wind doesn't blow and ERCOT misses their forecast, like power prices go skyrocketing. Right. Because yeah. we got to like turn on everything you got. Turn off that. Turn off this. We're going crazy. Right. And then or, you know, one day it was like, well, everything looks fine, but it happened to be cloudy in West Texas. Yeah. And so we didn't have the solar we needed. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? So it was a hot day, but when it was weird days, et cetera. And so this, these things, you know, people that are in the weeds trading power, like they're all over it, right? I'm not in the weeds trading power, but I'm keeping an eye on it for demand. And, and this volatility is going to more and more fall directly on the natural gas market because we're getting rid of coal, right? We're shutting down coal yeah. plants, like right. ESG movement out of crazy. So it's like, all the coal, all the gas is doing all the heavy lifting. It's, it's handling those power plants are handling the volatility. Our storage facilities are handling the volatility, right? And, and the, thus the uh, risk warehousers, myself, right? And all the other fundamental traders, we got to absorb that volatility. And we're like, okay, but you got to pay us. Yeah. You know, we, we're going to get, we're going to get a fat charge out of this. And, 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 you know, the LNG aspect, the volatility, the, the volatility associated with that was amazing. Like it was extremely bullish until Freeport LNG blew up, right? And, right. and they were just like wet blanket on that fire, right? And then, yeah. and then and then it's like holy shit, now we're bearish, right? Supply is now doing what we expected to do. It's growing, 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 growing. Freeport's off. We've kind of like filled the gap, and you know it's not like producers aren't going to try and take the money that's out there. It's it's going to keep growing, maybe not at the same rate. And now we're kind of looking at a bearish setup going into 2023 in natural gas, right? Well, and it's, I think it's something that's scary that I haven't seen heavily reported out there. There are a whole lot of shutdowns on uh, LNG refineries and the like of a fire. I've, I've got a, a theory this is some cyber attack thing going on. <laughs> uh, people I know in the industry are like, no, it's just we fired all the old guys at the downturn now we got a bunch of kids running the plants and they don't know how to do it but i think stuff like that happens more and more it, in the in the future than I mean, previously things, things break uh, i mean when you look read whatever you can get your hands on with the lng uh what happened at freeport and you know we hired two consultants we have tons of data we're always flying around and taking pictures and stuff to understand when they're going to come back on but you know it really was like just kind of like management neglect, right? Not properly trained people. Right. You know, the training program was like, hey, just follow this guy around and then you learn it and then you're the guy. But you don't really have any institutional knowledge. Like when the pipes are banging, like, hey, this is a sign. <laughs> Something's wrong. We got to shut it off. It's right? bad wrong. <laughs> I think any seven-year-old will know if like if you hear the pipes clanging, like something's wrong, right? Yeah. Like you don't just ignore that. But I don't know, you know, so and you just see things like, Industrial, these complex industrial facilities, things go wrong. Parts wear out. They're break. They're near water. They're near salt water, for God's sake. So, like, yeah. it, it is a, just a lot of things could go wrong. And when they go wrong, it's a lot of gas that all of a sudden has to find a home. Yeah. Right? And if it's extended out, it's just like a hurricane or, you know, that time when we had the, <laughs> the hurricane and the anchor dragged and it sunk a ship and it blocked right, the channel. Yeah. I mean, just 
weird stuff happens all the how time. How was that in your model? Yeah, yeah. That was, <laughs> yeah, didn't have that on the I don't bingo know how card. many satellite imageries uh, I, I bought to like kind of track that and and looked at like the draft of LNG ships and searched the world for like, all right, what's the most minimum draft? Because they restricted the draft. You know, you just do a lot of homework to try and figure out what can and can't happen when these events happen. And, um, you know, at, at, most of the time, you know, when the event happens at first, we have this like, oh, shit. Right. Like, especially when your position is the opposite yeah. of what happened, happened. But then I'm always like kind of thankful for some of these events, as long as nobody gets hurt, because that creates the market tends to overreact. Right. Or underreact. Right. It never gets it perfect. And that creates edge for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's amazing how these pieces fit together, because I will be the first to admit I totally miss the associated gas story. You know, oil is at 125 shell <laughs> revolution. <laughs> yeah. We're drilling. And I keep going, why are why are we not getting anything for our gas out in the Permian Basin? And all our CEOs go, well, I don't even give a shit. We're Nobody making gets. so much money on Nobody the oil. Gets. And it took me a while to to figure out, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it's more the the environmental aspect of it and the saying like you can't be flareness or putting out, you gotta stick it in the pipes and, and ship it. And they'll they'll be happy to to ship it once the infrastructure is there. But that, that's the great play, like, you know, just kind of like a marketing for um, risk warehouses in general. Not even my fund. Like, fuck me. Right? Yeah. Like, just in general, like, we always used to say the joke is the name of the game is to stay in the game. If right. you don't blow up, the market will present outsized opportunities and outsized returns. And if you look at kind of like what's going on in energy in general, both crude oil, natural gas, renewables, LNG, power. You have massive amounts of steel going here, going there, doing this, whatever, affecting the supply demands that lumpy, right? Yeah. And it's going to create these massive bull and bear scenarios where you're going to be able to profit because you're the guy and paying attention, right? Like yeah. you understand it more than anybody else, right? Other people have their other reasons for why they sold or bought, right? Which are rational to them. But when you look at the curve, the curve is completely out of whack yeah and it's going to be more out of whack on a go forward basis yeah no that's that's interesting the uh i think you almost talked me into markets aren't efficient i've always been in a, a oh, markets efficient guy the, my, the, my whole life i mean but, it couldn't be a centaurus if they were efficient right like how did we make all that money yeah how did i consistently make money for 10 years straight now another 10 20 something years i had like one or one or two one or two down years yeah you know, they're just, they're just fat. Yeah. No, and, and my, my snarky re response is yeah. always, you fill Rice Stadium and you flip uh, a quarter, somebody's going to flip heads. Somebody's going to be able. So maybe, maybe we're the, maybe the, we're the uh, head flippers, you know, 20 in a row. But, you know, I've just seen it. Like the guys who stayed in, the guys who really do their fundamental homework, the, the guys who I like respect their opinion when I ask them, what's your end of season or what are your power burns or what do you think is going to happen here? You know, they seem to be fairly consistent. The reasoning and everything makes sense. Um, you know, that's what they thought about John. Like, oh, with Enron and the machine, you can make a bunch of money. You can't make it on your own, you know? And, and, and I think John is kind of like this, uh, just kind of this like uh, schism about him because he's a market efficiency guy, but yet he exists. Yeah. <laughs> right. So how could you exist if the market's efficient? Right. Like if, if John, John, and we used to say that if John was an outsider, he would have never invested in himself. 
right? Because <laughs> he's such a market efficiency guy. And it's just like, we would have these, we'd have so many philosophical debates in Centaurus. It would just, it would just make your head spin. Well, and, <laughs> and the, the, the snarky response you can make back to me is, yeah, she spent 20 years convincing institutional investors that there's boots on the ground knowledge in Houston and that those Wall Street guys don't know what they're doing. You know? Yeah. Right. Because I mean, I mean, we tell a story. I mean, we all have our biases and we tell the story. I, I, I'm just kind of like, I've, you know, in the beginning of the natural gas days, when deregulation start, first started happening, I mean, the markets would just look ludicrously flat, right? And the brokerages reflected that, right? Brokerages yeah. would be like half a penny or something like that, right. uh, you know? And uh, uh, there was just lots of hedging and stuff and, and slop, and the market didn't have the infrastructure it needed. It, it was not enough storage for the way the industry was growing. So we'd have scenarios where you could have containment, right? Too much gas, and then that very... The winter following, not enough gas, yeah. right? Because the system didn't have enough storage, right? And because of the way we're building our infrastructure and the way we're layering things on, we're heading towards that again. I mean, if you look at the last five years, we really haven't added that much storage. But look at what supply well, has done. And, and I don't even, I mean, <laughs> and, and so now I'm going to put you in kind of forecaster role here. I don't know that we really can build a lot more infrastructure. I mean... You know, the FERC is now 3-2. Well, it's 2-2 because uh, Manchin, I think, is going to withhold the approval of the third guy. But, you know, they've changed for the first time in 20-some-odd years the approval process, and now they can look at uh, what it does to climate change. And that kind of gives the Democrats, and I hate to be political here, but it gives the Democrats the ability to say no to stuff. So I just wonder how much infrastructure we truly build going forward. I mean, I mean, you've got a better insight into that. Than I, I, I have, uh, you know, so I, I've done a development project in, in uh, Nevada uh, called Townsite, which is now owned by Arivon. They bought it out, which was originally Capital Dynamics. And we built this large solar facility. And I was quite amazed at how difficult it was to permit and get that facility up yeah. and running. Um, we and had, year, we had like was a, that? We, uh, it, was, it was just sold. Did I sell it like three or four years ago? So, I, so you maybe are permitting eight or nine years ago, something yeah, like that? So, yeah. I mean, you start yeah. with dev, et cetera. And, and now I'm working on town site too, uh, a smaller, you know, just facility working with the BLM, et cetera. But like the, the, the chart of things, like I remember one time they called me, this is kind of funny. They go, well, I said, well, are we done, are we done with this? Are we, have we gotten this approval? He goes, no, we, we got a pet cemetery issue. And I was like, <laughs> Stephen King, the fucking book? Who are talking <laughs> about pet cemetery? He goes, well, two miles away, there's a pet cemetery. It's not a historical site, but it may be a historical site, they think. So they want the historical society of so-and-so to comment that our solar panels won't reflect and interfere with the eyes of people at this pet cemetery that's closed, <laughs> like a cat cemetery. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me, right? We're being held up. And oh, on top of that, you can't be done electronically. It has to be done stale mail. We have to write the guy, send it to him. He has to send it back. They will not accept email, PDF, or DocuSign or whatever. And I'm, I'm, I'm literally pulling out my eyelashes or something. Like, I'm like, what, what? Are you kidding me? And I'm like, are they really? like? So think about how many ways a a nefarious person on the other side can try and delay your project. And oh. delaying a project is killing your project. It's killing it, yeah. That's, that's what the game is, right? They yeah. know that ultimately, if you're willing to go 15 years, you're gonna, you, you may get your project, but you just run out of money. Like you just delay the game. And so 
I know I'm cutting you off real quick just to commiserate with you. The bane of my existence for about 10 years was the blunt nosed leopard lizard. We had Kettleman, North Kettleman Dome or uh, Kettleman Middle Dome in California, this old oil and gas field. Chevron had abandoned it. We put it all back together. We're going to go in there and drill. And it pops up that we have the blunt nosed leopard lizard, which is an endangered species. We literally had to have hire a biologist. Every time one of them died, we had to have an autopsy on it to make sure our oil and gas operation yeah. didn't kill it. Oh, they'll, they'll, and, go, they'll go grab them and put them on your land just to fuck with you. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And you know the reason that the blunt-nosed leopard lizard is endangered? Because it's the dumbest motherfucker on the planet. <laughs> Trucks would come in and they'd run and jump into the side of it. And we're just like going, you know, Darwin talked about this. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. They, they, I mean, it's, it's there. And so I, I don't think people really understand how hard permitting is and how much the administration can make it hard or impossible for you. Yeah. Um, and... To me, it's concerning as like an American citizen because energy security is national security. Um, but as a trader, I'm like, yippee, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's on. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I don't care what you do. You build too much infrastructure, too little. You put this here, whatever. Yeah. Like, I am in the weeds. I understand everything that you're doing. I hoover in data. I'm here to like make money. You're just going to create yeah. volatility, which makes guys like me fat. Yeah. Right. So. In, in let's I'm, you know i don't have to brag about me just the whole squad of us right like right we get fat yeah right because because you guys are are, are fucking around playing politics with lives yeah no and i mean you're right about that because i say on the podcast all the time when we buy energy from authoritarian dictators bad shit happens oh. i mean it just does wars happen people die people freeze you know all what? that sort of stuff look, look at canada Right. Like somebody was tweeting was like, oh, you, you know, look at all the LNG guitars going. We have all this gas and we, we, we had 15 LNG permits and they didn't put up. And I just I was being snarky and I was just like, didn't you get the memo? Canada's job is to send ha cheap hydrocarbons to the USA and that's it. <laughs> get the fucking work. <laughs> and that's kind of what they do. Right. Like because their whole, you know, pol body politic is about like, you know, more about. Uh, I, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's right. more about like some global concerns than the local concerns. Yeah. Right. China doesn't give a fuck. They'll build like, you know, they'll build a whole U.S. worth of coal plants in a year. Yeah. Right. No, they're like, you know, they're like, they don't give a rat's ass. Go ahead and do all the things you want. Like we're, we're about our, our energy security and people here. Right. Yeah. And, and, and they're doing it with the worst hydrocarbon. Right. In terms of uh, emissions, radio emissions, radioactive nucleotides, uh, carbon emission, nitrous oxide particulate matter etc the worst one right and and you know you got guys in the northeast like they may run out of gas and the marcellus is right there because he can't get a pipeline in oh, right. and so like yeah. these things just i'm you know you 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 rack your brain you're just you hate to see it happen right like it's like oh you you, you don't have to die you don't have to kill these old people um and people think i'm joking when i say you don't have to kill old people but like being cold in the winter is a huge factor in elderly death to totally. And so when, when they were talking about lowering the thermostat in Europe to like 67 degrees, I was like, do you understand? Like there's little recommendations. Like you cannot do that if you're a certain age. Yeah. Your body cannot handle that and it creates stress and you die. And, and so much so there was a public, I remember it's quite a while ago. Um, but there was a very mild winter and there was a public uh, funeral home and they had bad earnings. And they was like, because of the mild winter, we had less dust than expected. <laughs> so literally they can weather hedge 
for yeah. their deaths going through their funeral home. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, these are real, these are real, these, these, you know, everybody thinks these, uh, decisions, you know, they're, they're, they're signaling and they're virtually, I was like, there's real world consequences immediately for some of these decisions. Um, you know, from the trading's perspective, cause this isn't a political show or a, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, right. All right. Like the, from a trading perspective, all, all I see is opportunity. Yeah. Like uh, my, I'm, I, I have to be, you know, I have a responsibility to my investors, my LPs, et cetera, that they pay me to put on risk and to make them money and to seek the opportunity. So I look at everything from like, okay, how, how am I going to extract value? What does it say about the market, et cetera? So I'm very, very stoic and very robotic about it. But as a human, as an American, you know, I'm pulling my hair out. Well, I don't have any hair on my head, yeah. but eyelashes out. The, uh, no, that's right. We, so Colin and I do another podcast we call BDE. We call it the weekly summary of the energy business for people that think Jim Cramer sucks. Right. No, no offense, Jim. I actually like Jim. But anyway, um, and we always end the show with finger of the week. We've got this little video of everybody shooting the rod. And we always give it to somebody that has malign the energy business in, an, in what we believe is an unfair way. We've had to retire the award because Senator Warren would win it just when, every every week. She would say something or do something. Yeah, she's because so, um, I mean they had a day. To your point, I mean, okay, so we import LNG in in Massachusetts, yeah. which is ridiculous because in effect, what we're doing is we're basically taking from Russia. We did from <laughs> Russia. But, but even if even even we're taking it from in effect Trinidad and it should be going to Europe. I mean the Europe We do it for Trinidad, we do it from Russia, we do it from yeah, other places. And, yeah. and well and it's because that's because of the Jones Act. And so there's a oh, lot the of the Jones Act's horrific. So there's it's horrific and it, it costs American consumers and it's a it's a anti national security act in my opinion. Um it needs to be abolished. Um but uh, yeah, tomorrow if I it, were, it, it, probably one of the most polluting things besides biodiesel <laughs> yeah. but, uh, is uh is, is is the jones act uh there's so much trucking and stuff that goes on inefficient shipping that goes on because we do not ship from port to port so you, this is this is a wild thing colin and i've talked about on the podcast and i actually kind of believe this but i haven't researched it enough so you can punch holes in it is one of the greatest um uh decarbonizers on the planet besides the tree is a whale because when the whale dies it's got about 33 tons of carbon in it and just sinks to the bottom of the ocean right and so one we've taken our whale population 200 years ago let's say it was 5 million today it's about 1.2 million and it's hard to really grow that whale population because all the ships going everywhere because a young whale is always curious right. comes up to the ship gets hit and dies so it's hard to grow our whale population so not only are we losing the decarbonization of a whale dying and taking the carbon with us, what they figured out is about 40% of um, getting rid of uh, CO2 out there is plankton, you yeah. know, and the best thing for plankton on the planet is whale shit. I mean, because of all the nutrients that come out, I mean, that's the big, and so we have less plankton, we have less whales because of the, all the ships going everywhere. Yeah, I, I can't push back on that. I would have to research it. But what you're really pointing out, and you know, I've seen some documentaries and stories about on how interconnected our ocean is and our, 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 our yeah. environment, et cetera. And that fucking with the environment and these systems 
causes consequences. Yeah, right? to your Cause point, it's second order effects yeah. on, on all yeah. this stuff. Yeah, because because I mean, it's crazy. They had a day last winter where twenty five percent of the heating in the Northeast was driven by heating oil because they don't have a pipeline from the Marcellus. It's, it's you know we had to send. They got to the burn coal. They got to whatever. Yeah. And the, the the thing that's really decarbonized America. The re- reason why. Without carbon caps or any kind of rules or regulations, et cetera, the reason why our carbon emissions have flat, uh, flatlined and gone down is because of natural gas. Yeah. Cheap natural gas. Yeah. Because natural gas is eaten into the coal stack, which is the, the most carbon-intensive fuel. And natural gas is more efficient. You get more electrons you know, out yeah. of it through the turbines. Uh, it's cleaner burning, and there's less carbon, nitrogen oxides, et cetera, PM10, all, all those things. And so- that has been an amazing accomplishment and have saved literally hundreds of thousands of lives. I right? saw a stat the other day that we are per person at CO2 emissions that are kind of rivaling us coming out of uh, World War II. Yeah, that, so, we, that, we, that we, we, we've right. declined our emissions that much. So I'm not saying we can't, we can't do more, but one of the ways we can easily do more, the low-hanging fruit is more natural gas burning plants. Yeah. Right, that, that, that's that's easy, and they're 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 energy dense, and not as energy dense as a nuclear plant, right? You'd rather have a nuclear plant than a natural gas plant, but they're energy dense. Uh, they they serve a lot of homes, and when you 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 bring in cheap natural gas in a lot of regions, say them, um, you you obviate the need for coal. I mean, the, you the, can baseload these things. The the Marshall Plan, if you will, of the current day to deal with CO two, and I don't know that you could pull it off with China just because of the geopolitical. Uh, tension there, but we could do it with India. Is you ought to just go finance the the U.S. government ought to finance natural gas infrastructure in India. It's just like, hey guys, skip coal. The the, uh, pro- the problem is is that like the the uh, this is my opinion I, uh, and my observation is that the 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 true environmentalists have been hijacked by radical lefties who really kind of have this like um, anti-human nihilistic narcissistic uh, approach. It's not really true, let's put in policies that really affect right. the environment. Actually, a lot of the policies and the things they support actually hurt the environment. Yeah. Actually lead to bigger disasters. You can just look at Germany and their situation. I know. They're burning coal like it was going out of style, despite the, the wind additions, et cetera. Um, they, they shut down their nukes. That was for some environmental reason. I was like, I, I didn't really understand that. So I'll never understand that. And so... And you have that here, right? Like we, we you, you know, wait, but why? Let's look at the net impact you're going to have here. And then, you know, this kind of this idea is like, well, let's look at the net impact of solar environmentally and what happens here and the mining and the minerals and the carbon that goes into it. And when do you get the return and all these things, right? And the intermittency and what happens when it's, the sun's not shining and then you have these batteries and then you have to go to some other fuel and you right. just wind up, you just, you know, they just do a lot of things that are not necessarily efficient and sometimes counterproductive. Uh, and so I don't, I see chaos ahead. Yeah. Right. Like when people say, oh, we're going to meet these CO2 targets. I'm like, fuck, no, we're not. Yeah. I mean, if, if there's one bet I can bet on, <laughs> I would right. bet against that because right. I, uh, because I look at the policies, I'm like, these are not effective. But if you just told me, Hey, the policies is we're going to launch, you know, t- t- uh, 20, 30, 40 gigawatts of natural gas plants. I'd be like, oh, we're going to fucking crush carbon emissions. Yeah, because there'll be no coal. Burn. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're gonna replace every coal plant with a gas plant. I'm like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna cut our our, our carbon emissions, et cetera. So mostly all our carbon emissions 
reduction has been from natural gas. Yeah, totally, totally. We uh, replacing coal. So here's a digital wildcatter story that I love to tell, and I will I will give uh, props. So we just did our fuse conference, mm -hmm. and the whole point of fuse was if you make energy, i.e., oil and gas, solar, whatever, show up. If you move it, distribution right. pipelines. If you use it, everybody show up. Let's all talk and quit shitting on each other like we normally do. Let's actually talk. We'll talk technology right. and how we can uh, solve all this. So we had uh, Toby Rice come and talk. And, you know, he's really incredibly eloquent about uh, natural gas and what it's done. And I think he's done a really good job of educating. Uh, so anyway, he does a speech. And then from the stage at Fuse, he does a CNBC interview and the reporter ended the interview with that was Toby Rice, CEO of EQT from what appears to be a rock concert. In <laughs> Texas. So we're going, OK, cool. Rock stars. Our, our energy conference was a was a rock show. But yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, if we true, I mean, we could sit here for days and just talk about all of these small little policies and the second order effects and yeah. how really we're running in place. Yeah, and and I, I think uh, in certain ways, definitely in localized places, we're making it a lot worse. Right? Yeah. Well, I would say I, let's just say more volatile and more opportunities. Like let's yeah. just keep bringing it back. I to love trading. the trader. You're back to make, the trading. I'm I'm ready. You know, private equity kicked me out of the club two and a half years ago. I'm ready to be a trader. I mean, look, I private equity or equity guys trading stocks are like, oh, commodities is too volatile. I was like, wait, what? This Meta printed this. These things are down seventy <laughs> percent. This is down twenty five percent. I'm like. What are you guys afraid of? Yeah. I, I thought natural gas was volatile. I was like, come on, guys. Like, the water's always, fine. So when I was at Kane Anderson, you know, on the private equity side, we had traders in L.A. that would look at stuff. And we'd always talk about who was taking more risk. And they would sit there. You made an illiquid investment. You own 95% of a company. When something goes wrong, what are you going to do? All yeah, this. Yeah. I can sell tomorrow. Yeah. If I'm wrong, I'm out. And I was yeah. always like. You have no idea what that company's doing. You're reading a 10K. And so it's it's interesting how you think about risk because they thought what we were doing is the riskiest thing on the planet. I couldn't fathom how they would buy an oil and gas stock not having seen a log. Yeah. You know, but anyway. Yeah, they're they're out there. I mean, we it's it's a it's a strange world. But I think um, you know, at the end of the day, the end customer is probably usually some pension fund or or or, or you know, individuals, et cetera. Right. And their whole lives, they've been talk, talking like how you invest is you buy stocks. How you get rich is yeah. you buy a stock. Not sell a stock and then buy it cheaper, but buy a stock and then sell it later, right? right. And so that's ingrained in kind of like the culture. Uh, and so there's just this huge bias for those instruments, equities, yeah. right? Huge bias for the equities. No matter how much I can paint the most like, believe me, we are the house and this is casino and we print money and look at the edge. and. Look at this trade. Where do you ever see an 85% trade in your life? Right. Yada, yada, yada. You know, and they'd be like, what stock can we buy? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, okay, buy, uh, buy energy transfer. You know, yeah. you, know what I mean? like, you, you know, buy energy transfer, you know, that type of thing. You know, that, so whatever, you know, I just like, okay, fine. They never, they never. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been in here long enough that um, it's really hard to um, raise capital. In, in yeah. discretion long short in, in in our market and it's funny because i'll see these hedge funds they'll be like we had it down 50 percent or down 25 percent they'll get another four billion yeah. you know they'll, oh, they'll yeah. just start fund two four billion here you go and i'm like can we get a 25 million dollar allocation you know here i know i, used I mean i i got 170 percent return 
You know, yeah. can, can I can I get can I get can I get a little money? You know? I used to I used to <laughs> always be shocked because there's this you know the the C, the chief investment officer the CIO is sitting there, and there's always this I want a small localized focus guy. I want somebody like Bill who really is down in the weeds on this, understands it. But gosh, it's just easier to give BlackRock two billion dollars and I don't have to, to worry ship about it. it. Because I don't get fired if I hired BlackRock. No, you know? right. Yeah, it's yeah. like the old adage, like nobody gets fired for buying IBM, right? Yeah, exactly. Like nobody gets fired for just being Bill, long stocks. Bill, Bill loses my 10 million bucks, I might get fired. But, you know, I, I think yeah. it's some sort of herd mentality too. Like it's like, well, if we're all losing, it's okay. Yeah. We all lost. We're all down 25% yeah. or 30%, whatever. Things go wrong, right? Yeah. We also like, there's no, like this, if you invest in a commodity guy and he happens to have a bad year, polar vortex gets him, whatever. Who knows what gets you? It right. Gets, right. Things do get us, right? Um, you know, it's just hard to explain. Yeah, that's funny. Now, I got to ask, because I will fess up. We've yeah. become such good friends here over the last hour. <laughs> My crush growing up, I used to race home from school so I could turn on good times. Young yeah. Janet Jackson. Oh, my oh yeah, God. for sure. Right. I mean, you're, you're my age. So you Charlene, this, when she was Charlene on yeah. different strokes, that was kind of my, 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 like, yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah, she's, she's amazing. But, you think about Penny on, on good times. I'm thinking about Penny on good you're times. Penny on good times. Yeah. I, 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 I like there as Penny on good time. I loved her as Charlene on, on different strokes. Gotcha. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, but the picture, Sugar Shack, Sugar Shack. from good times. So, yes. so I think this is one of the coolest things in the world that yeah. you bought this thing. Tell me that story. So do I. Um, so we're actually going to bring up John again. Um, so I, I, I always kind of wanted that painting, you know, just yeah. kind of my collection. I, and John introduced me to Ernie Barnes and, you know, John's a, a serious art collector. Uh, I, I don't even think he's an amateur. His house is like a museum, but uh, uh, of, of great, great works. And, you know, I always ask him for advice. And I was expanding on my Biggers collection. He says, you should look at this guy, Ernie Barnes. So I, I bought a couple pieces and they're cheap, like relatively speaking, right? right? Because given the significance of his work and, 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 and who he is, um, and just basically that narrative, right? The narratives he's painting in America are distinctly American, right? Like if you're painting flowers in an ice skating scene, it could be in France, it could be sure. anywhere, right? If you're painting whatever, but the, the like stories or narratives about, uh, black love or back joy in the segregated South, et cetera. And those experiences, they're nowhere but America. Right. So it's truly American. Forget the, the, don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel, it is what it is. Like nobody feels guilty about, well, the Mayans were wiped out 2000 years ago. It's like an event that happened. Right. Yeah. And so when you look at it, it's like, this is a distinctly American art right around here. So this is, this is, this is a narrative. It can't be recreated. He's one of the early masters. You really don't get African-American artists until 30, 40 years after the end of slavery, right? Because you have to have community, right? And these guys got to buy brushes, et cetera. So with that backstory in and the fact that, you know, it had to be crazy to try and be an artist as a black person, artist anyway, and then as a black person in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? Like, who the hell thinks you're going to make money selling art, right. painting black people, right? Like, it's just kind of nuts, right? So you're really passionate about it. And I see this, you know, growing up, good times every day, yeah, right? And so... I'm like, I want this painting. And I do some Googling and find out Eddie Murphy has it. Yeah. So I call Eddie Murphy's assistant. First thing she asked me is, how'd you get my number? I'm like, I have my wife. <laughs> 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 and so I'm like, listen, I, I just want to buy, buy the painting. Um, I, I'm 
willing to offer, I'm serious, I'm willing to offer a million dollars for this painting, right? Because the, the highest print on Ernie Barnes was like uh, $400,000, $500,000. And I know that because I bought it. Right. So I was the highest print before right. the auction, right? Right. She's I, like, no. I am the high bidder. It, yes. I didn't even get the dignity of a callback. Call, you know what I mean? Like, did, did nothing. Like, eat a bag of dicks, Bill Perkins. That's kind of <laughs> like, <laughs> like the response I got, right? And so I was like, all right, well, maybe, you know, later he'll sell it or he's not feeling it or whatever. And um, so John messages me. He goes, what's, what's the name of that piece you wanted, whatever? And I go, Sugar Shack. He goes, it's up for auction. It's another one at Christie's. I go, you're fucking kidding me. Sends me the link. I look at it. I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. And so I'm, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, I, I got to get registered. Call accounts. Wiring money to so-and-so. You know, like get, get my credit ready. I'm ready. But I'm like, wait, fuck this shit. I cannot have my computer go down or whatever. I really like this is the piece. I'm going to go get it. And given that, and it was kind of weird because they put it in the night auction, which is where all the expensive pieces go, the Monets and Picassos, but it had a low estimate of like a couple hundred grand. Yeah. And I'm like, John, what's going on? Like, why? And he's like, yeah, they know something's up. Like something's yeah. up. Like, they just said, we're going to go with a low thing and let people go crazy over it, right? And, and so I told my sister, I said, your job is to make sure I'm at this auction. I got to be there in person. I don't want anything to go wrong. So I fly to New York. Uh, with Lara and we go visit some art galleries and look at things. And, and I'm like, I'm not going to buy anything. Cause what if I need the money for this painting? Right. And I'm thinking it's going to go for like 3 million. Right. Right. So I come in, I walk into Christie's. It's amazing. They have the, some of the works that are going up for auction. It's really like a beautiful museum. When you go and you see these works of art that, that are either going to be auctioned or have been auctioned uh, that night and sugar shacks right there. And I walk up to it. I'm looking at it. I'm like, you know, Lara and I have a plan. Like, don't act real, real quick, because because so this is the I read up on this. Yeah. So Eddie Murphy has the original. Um, Ernie did a duplicate of it by hand, seventy six or so, right? Yeah, right. And that that's the that's the that's one. the one we're talking about. There's okay. two of these yeah. things out there. Yeah. So uh, so the one that he has, uh, I think um, Eddie has the one with the Marvin Gaye painting on top like the the radio station on it because it was on on the album i think uh i think the album's it has i want you on it okay. so after the dance i think yep. is the name of the album right so it's on an album uh it's on good times it's in the culture it's it's a it's because yeah, ernie changed it up after marvin gaye put it on the album yeah he right? no he changed it for the album so when you buy Ch the album okay. it has like you know some radio fake radio station on yeah it okay yeah stuff like that. a banner it's, hanging in the sugar shack right that's so cool yeah um and so cody the guy who did the documentary for genius about kanye west right is there and this other guy i didn't i didn't know him at the time but they're they're like kind of sitting there with camera and I'm, I'm gonna go oh my god they're, they're looking at this painting Guy comes up to me and goes, like, do you know this painting? Uh, um, yeah, of course. It was on this, whatever. And he's like, yeah, well, we're, we're doing a documentary on Ernie Barnes and his life works. And I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, that's great, whatever. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> if he's here doing a documentary, some shit's going to pop Tra off. And then, yeah, right? Tra Trader Bill pops <laughs> off going. Yep, so inside right. my head, I'm like, fuck, it's going to pop off. It's going to pop off. So I go in. Somebody took my seat. I had to go sit over in some other area. You know, there's a press behind you, the press row in the back, uh, a whole broker row elevated over here, Hong Kong 
uh, behind on the screen, right? Big giant screen with Hong Kong brokers with phones. You, you can see them on telephones and a auctioneer up front and in and, and this pit, right? And this whole row of press. I go in, it's kind of, it's kind of nice. It's awesome, right? So they're auctioning, Monet, you know, 10 million, 50 million, Picasso, this, you know, whatever. And then there was a painting just before it. I think it was a, I don't know, Monet, it was like a Chagall or something. I don't know. I was going to, I was going to bid on it. And I said, don't you fucking dare do it, Perkins. You may need the money. This thing could <laughs> pop off. Thank God I didn't. And so, <laughs> so we go through and, you know, the auction and a little golf claps for right. each time, whatever. And then this thing, you know, the announcer says, so this work, whatever, important, whatever. And we have 21 or whatever bidders that register. I'm like, nobody, there was number 20. Like, and it, it, he goes, I'll start the bidding off at 100, whatever. And then it was like, blah, 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 blah. it looks like the trading floor, but like back in 93 in the heating oil pit. You know what I mean? And like, it was just, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, holy shit, 2 million. You know, I just yell it out, right? And then everybody's like, 2 million, 2 million, blah, blah, blah. 3 million. So it just goes crazy, like, like that. And then finally, I'm just like, I got to clear these people out. Like, right. You know, I want this. And I was like, all right, we've already passed what I thought it was going to go for. <laughs> and it just keeps going. And then finally, there were three. And then there were just two of us um, bidding back and forth. And the guy just happenstance to be two rows in front of me. And it was kind of empty chairs in between us. And he's on the phone talking to whoever is whoever. The, the, other, the other buyer. And we're going back and forth. And it gets up to around six million or, or, or six, six and a half million, seven million. And the guy turns to me and he goes, I'm not going to stop. And then I go, well, then I'm going to make you pay. <laughs> Everybody starts laughing, right? Like, cause you don't, you know, you normally like the etiquette, right, you right. don't turn to the other bidder. You don't say anything or whatever. And they're like, he does one. He's like, ah, peasant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, God damn it. We and have it, one of those guys. guys exactly. Yeah, yeah. Pesky kid, you know, yeah, whatever, exactly. whatever. And so we're going back and forth. Um, you know, slowly, then quickly, small jumps, then high jumps. And I'm sitting there thinking, taking pause. And I turn to Lara and I go, what should I do, babe? She's like, you're on your own. Like, I, can't, <laughs> I can't say anything. Because before this, I said, hey, babe, if anything happens to me or I pass out or anything like that, don't fucking worry about me. Keep bidding. <laughs> Literally told her those words before we go. In there. Oh, do not worry about me. Keep bidding. And so uh, we keep going. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I'm thinking about what am I going to sell in order to buy this piece? <laughs> I'm like, well, I can sell this. And I don't really need that house over there, do I? You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, how much cash do I actually have? I'm going to have to borrow some money from John in the short term. You know what I mean? Like, these thoughts are going through my head, right? Like, it's because I only, uh, put a certain amount of credit. And actually, I wonder what ha would have happened had I been online. Because oh, yeah. I would have broke through my credit limit right around three million, right? Oh, wow. And yeah. I don't know if I could have got approval in time before the hammer dropped, right? right. Whereas you're live, they're just like, well, fuck it. <laughs> he's, he's here. He's here, we think he's got it, you know? Which I did, but um, so we keep going. And then finally, at around at 13 million, he just goes, bad luck number, I'm out. And I got it. And the, the place went fucking nuts. Oh, man. The place went nuts. I mean, I, I was like, I don't know what's going on. And I was just ecstatic. I was like ecstatic. I was so happy. Like, I, I stole the police. I was just like, amazing. And then, and then, you know, people went nuts. And Art World was like, what the fuck? And everybody in Hong Kong is like kind of staring. Like, everybody else is quiet. It's me and this guy. And everybody's kind of like, 
who the fuck is Ernie Barnes? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't know, right? Like, because the art market is biased, right? It's biased against American art, except for like the super majors, right? And it's definitely biased against African-American natters and, and American arts. And, and it's, it's just what it is. It's culture, right? There's not this big education and not into the narratives. They don't feel weird. And I think that's also partly because, I've said this, partly because of the black community. Like a lot of people congratulated me and they were like, we're glad a black guy bought this work. And I'm like, you guys are fucking crazy. If you want to support black artists, it cannot be just black people buying them. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like that, That's like you going to go sell your house in an auction. I'm like, I hope two people show up. Right. Like, what do you mean two people? <laughs> I need thousands of people, right? Really what you want is the Chinese to buy it yeah. or the Russians to buy it or some French oligarch to buy it. And then when he has it on his wall, he tells a story and everybody's exposed to the artists and the narratives and they want to collect it, right? That's how you support Black art, black narratives, not by just the small amount of African-American collectors collecting African-American artists. Art is for everybody. These narratives and, are for everybody. And you want and you want Ernie to get that payday Correct. in the future. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, my, my belief is that things based on a lie eventually rectify themselves. It may not be in my time, but this market is distorted and I'm just buying it cheaply. So I'm buying a hundred million dollar painting for 15 million bucks. And yeah, the market doesn't show that right now, but it'll eventually get there. It's kind of like when I saw March, April in the winter. Yeah, it's a dollar twenty now, but it's gonna go out at zero or is this? You know what well, I mean? Like that type of thing. And you're walking the walk on this because we can go see it at the uh, museum. Museum of Fine, Fine Arts. Arts. Yeah, yeah, I, I have it. You know, I think it's it's a treasure, and that people need to see it. And the museum wanted it, and they want to display it. And then somebody asked, also asked to display it. So it's gonna go from the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston to kind of like a sugar shack display other Ernie Barnes work in LA. Other people have hit me up to display it. And you know, I want people to enjoy it. And my, my kids kind of were like, dad, you can't bring that in here. I'm like, why? He's like, people know you, they're gonna come try and rob it and steal it. We, we don't feel safe it's in here, you know? So I gotta deal with that issue and put it somewhere. I gotta find a good place to put it um, in one of my places where people don't know it. But I, I just am ecstatic about it. And I'm happy for the Barnes estate. I'm happy for there was another painting called Storm Chasers that was for sale at the evening sale. My plan was to pick up both. But I didn't even show up to the evening sale the next day because once I put that print up, I knew like the, the secret was out. Right. right. And so yeah. that thing should have went, you know, it had the barns not gone first. I would have been able to buy that for like 150,000 maybe. You know, right. it went for like, uh, was it two million bucks? I think it went for two million bucks and it was two Asians bidding against each other. Oh, that's awesome. So, 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 you know, kind of, I was like, well, the gig is up. I can't be stealing black art. Right. Like people <laughs> right. think like, oh, we thank you for buying black art. Yeah. I'm like, guys, I'm a thief. I yeah. see, I'm, I'm a trader. I see relative to the art market. I see value and I come and buy it and I enjoy it and I get to enjoy it and get joy out of it while I'm alive for relatively cheap rent. You yeah. know what I mean? I was like, you can't tell me this Warhol's a hundred million dollars and this is 15. These guys are crazy. Right. And there's two of these. You know what I mean? Like, you guys are nuts. You guys are nuts. It's like your biases have distorted your appreciation. And, and I think ultimately those biases will come out of the market. Maybe not in my lifetime, but they will. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting because you hear discussion like that. And, oh, somebody sold out or whatever. And I, it's totally, totally wrong for me to try to uh, quote Snoop Dogg because he's so much cooler than I am. <laughs> but I love his quote about, no, no, when you're the OG, you get paid. Yeah, you didn't exactly. sell out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you didn't, you didn't yeah. sell out. So no, I think that's I think that's just an awesome story that you did. That. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I I I still everybody's like it's so cool. I'm like, guys, 
I fucking stole a painting in broad daylight. I bought a, I, everybody's like, oh, $15 million. I was like, if I bought a G650 for $15 million, you'd be like, good deal. Problem is you just don't understand the art that I bought. And when you do, you'd be like, fuck, he stole a G650. Yeah. So that, that's how I look at it. But I mean, yeah, people want to thank me, fine. Thank me. But you, you're, you're, it's like thanking the thief that comes in and steals your car. Yeah. No, it's, it's really <laughs> cool. And, and uh, you've been kind with your time. I want one last thing. We can be really quick about yeah, this. No, I quick. think this rolls into the book you wrote, Die right. With Zero. And right. you, you were kind enough to come talk to my breakfast club, I don't know, a month, month and a yeah. half ago. And uh, anyway, it was interesting to hear. So give us the punchline on, wow. on Die punch With line. Zero. Punchline of, uh, you guys got a sophisticated audience. So it's a counterfactual regret minimization algorithm solving for net fulfillment. Okay, so I'll, re I'll re-say it. So basically, I take three variables, your wealth, your health, and your time left here on earth. And those are the variables, right? And what those variables I solve for, net fulfillment. Because I believe the purpose of life is to be fulfilled, right? And you want, your, your purpose of your life is to have the maximum fulfillment while you are, your journey, your vacation here on planet Earth, right? And your vacation on planet Earth is going to end. Um, and so using those three variables and how they change throughout your life, I, uh, you know, the regret minimization is for maximum fulfillment, right? A chess uh, algo's uh, regret minimization is for checkmate, not to lose, right? right? A lot of people uh, are running regret minimization for maximum wealth. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck about maximum wealth. I care about maximum fulfillment, right? Wealth is just a tool to help me fulfill myself. My health is a tool to help me fulfill myself. My time that I'm allocated is something they use up to help me fulfill myself. And I'm like, based on your own values, not my values, the things you like, you're do, you want to do, I give you kind of a mental models in order to get the maximum out of your life. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great to think about because I, I went through divorce, call it seven, eight years ago, and gave my ex-wife plenty of money. But, you know, I was still, I, we had just raised the largest fund in Kane Anderson's history, so riding high. And as stupid as this sounds, and as boastful as this sounds, and I hate to be arrogant, but whatever, I'm so glad I went and bought two planes during that time. I flew around. <laughs> I, you know, I went out on tour with Jewel and Thomas Rhett and right. all these people. I was their roadie, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, when I get fired, I'm like, oh, shit, I can't really have a plane anymore. That's not uh, practical. But I'm so glad I did that. Yeah, I mean, I've been matching, like, you know, I've been rich, I've been broke, I've been broke, I've been rich, you know. And, um, you know, I had a plane, then I had to sell them. I actually sold one to John. <laughs> <laughs> and John and John was a hard bargain. Like, you still you this bid? No, I'm this bid now. No, you still this bid? No, I'm this bid. I'm like, fuck it, sold, you know what I mean? <laughs> a guy will not, you know, John is a very, very robotic when it comes to money and trading. Oh, like, he so cuts, funny. there's no quarter for friends whatsoever, right? Anyway, um, but yeah, I get it. Like, you, you, at that time period in your life, these are the experiences you want to have. They fulfilled you. And now you have memory dividends associated with those experiences that still fulfill you. Yeah. And you're happy about it. You don't have a regret about it. A lot of people, they have periods in their life where certain things are meant to happen, whether it's spend time with their daughter, go on trips, go on vacations, et cetera. They don't do them. They get to another period of their life and either it's inefficient or they're unable to do those things. And then they have regret. And so I look at it at each segment of your life and then the totality of your life so that 
you die with the least regret as possible. Really zero. Die with zero regrets. Yeah, no, and that that's that's really good advice because one of the article an article I'd read in the Wall Street Journal, call it twenty years ago, had said psychological research shows if you make your money versus given your money, it usually leads to to more fulfillment than if you're just given money. And then the other thing it said in there is that generally speaking, life experiences with that money lead to way more fulfillment than objects. I I, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. But I don't tell people that don't buy the object. I'm like, listen, fuck Bill Perkins. Whatever fulfills you, fulfills you. Just yeah. be off autopilot, be intentional about it, and then hear the mental models on how to get the most fulfillment. Yeah. Right? How to allocate it over your life, right? Like nobody's saving up to go partying at 96. Right. If you are, you got problems or you, <laughs> I want your drugs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you're going to live to 150 or 200, right? Yeah. Uh, and so intuitive we know, intuitively know there's a time, there's a season where we should be max spending and enjoying and allocating certain experiences, right? Right. And so this book goes into that concept a lot further, right? And, and gives you the mental models about how to think about delayed gratification or gratification now, how to allocate these experiences, how to get off autopilot, how to defeat default mode network, right? Like we all have a default mode network. Like when you drive, pretty much in default mode network. Like when you first started driving, you were like, ah, signal, uh, light, uh, brake, uh, yeah. whatever, guy, whatever, right? And now you're like, ooh, do, 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 do. You know what I mean? <laughs> Doing makeup, right? Like right. it's because your, your body takes over and, and, and you have this default mode network where you do things without thinking. This also happens in work, right? Yeah. And actually the habit of going to work. And all our other habits, we go into kind of this default mode network for survival, where surviving is not thriving. Yeah. You know? So we start accumulating wealth, uh, accumulating habits that don't necessarily serve our fulfillment. And not only is life finite, but each period in your life is finite. And so, you know, I, I speak to that and other things in the book. I don't, we, don't, we don't want to do the whole goddamn book, but, you know, right. that, that helps you save your own life. And, and people go, Bill, what the fuck are you talking about? Save life. And so I, I use this because I'm kind of a, a zealot about this. And I've said it a couple of times. So if somebody's drowning on the beach, okay, and you, you, you yank them out of the water and you give them out the mouth and the water comes out and they start breathing. They're like, oh my God, you saved my life. Guess what? They're still going to fucking die. They're just not going to die that day. Okay, they're still 100% gonna die. So what did you give them? You gave them more experiences, more I love yous, more walks in the parks, more, more things that they wanna do, right? You just give them a little bit more, right? And so when you optimize your life, you get off autopilot, you implement these mental models, you get more experiences, more I love yous, more of the things you want, more fulfillment, same fucking thing. Yeah, the thing that <laughs> nailed, nailed it home for me, and I'm gonna go buy the book and, and read the book is, when we were talking, I think you were talking about wakeboarding and you're yeah. like, I forget what you said, but my knee's not going to be yeah, able to wake. My back, my back, your back, yeah. Yeah. your back's not going to be able to wakeboard in two years. Fuck it. I should do it today. Yeah. I like doing this. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've only got so many more days that I can do it. Yeah. And it, that really struck a chord with me that morning sitting in breakfast and I'm looking down, eating all the bacon and clogging my arteries. But yeah. It was kind of like, yeah, it was, it was kind of like, you and know, he's right. It's, it's, it's funny how like. I always say, like, the book is not complex. It's not rocket scientists. Life cycle hypothesis has been out there, which is, a lot of this is basically life cycle hypothesis. It's just, 
you have to get the message across that gets away and sinks into people so they can apply it. And so for you, the, 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 the light switch for you was, holy shit, wakeboarding, you know, I won't be able to do it. And then it kind of makes you think about it and you're open to it. Because we, you know, it, it's, that's what I think we, people are like, well, what's a good book? It's, I said, it's one that, that goes past people's egos and gets them to think about the world differently. Yeah. Right. And so sometimes you have to explain the same thing 50, 100 different ways to get in and sink in. And, and I'm glad I'm glad I came and I'm glad I spoke and I'm glad you're going to get some of your life back. You're going to have a more fulfilling life. There we go. I like that. Well, Bill Perkins, you were awesome to come on. This has been great. Yeah, I'm, it's fun. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, happy to come on again. It's great, great blathering. I love blathering energy or all things. I like blathering. Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was about to say, it was nice being on a podcast where I wasn't the coolest guy in the room. Yeah, so I, mean, I'm, I'm, I cool. appreciate, you know, that that title. I don't know if it's true. I mean, my kids will be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But yeah. Well, you know what the, the story on that is? So Bono and his wife have Jay-Z and Beyonce over to dinner. And I forget who it was. Rolling Stone magazine. Somebody interviews Bono's daughter and goes how was dinner last night jay-z and beyonce came over and the daughter goes oh my god i'm just so embarrassed all dad did was talk about africa the whole time i'm so embarrassed so bono can't look cool for his kids <laughs> yeah, no, none no, of us no, none, none of us exactly i yeah, agree none of us have it. yeah none of us have it. true story that, that gives me that lifts my spirits a little bit so uh i appreciate you having me on oh absolutely absolutely <laughs>